It isn't something I can talk about just in one night. It's something we'll probably be talking about a lot throughout the months ahead. And even if God is willing, the years ahead, we're always going to have these themes in our mind about the current events and the things that we've always been told to watch. What four things are significant and critical for us to be watching as far as the prophetic timetable of God, as far as current events, as far as the activities in the spiritual realm? What four things should we have our eyes open watching? Israel. Israel, the body of Moses. I didn't hear you, Cindy. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. The body of Moses is one of the things that we need to be watching. When I say watching, I mean aware of what's going on, aware of where they're at, aware of how they're being affected and what type of actions they're taking. I'll talk maybe a little more about that, but first I want to see if you can think of who all four of these are. I've usually heard people mention three, but I'm going to make it four. I think there are four. The body of the beast. The body of the beast, Brother Stallard said. The beast has a body, doesn't it? It actually helps to better understand any of these when you do have the terminology body with them because it makes it much clearer that this isn't just a person. This is a body. This is a group. This is a whole societal group. So there's the body of Moses, which are the physical Israelites. Seed of Abraham by physical birth. Nobody can be put inside the body of Moses anymore in a true sense except by physical birth. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because there's people, I think, right now that think they're going into the body of Moses, and they're not. You can no longer become a proselyte, truly, of the body of Moses. You could have, up until Jesus changed the covenant, fulfilled it. But now, God does not enjoin anybody into the Mosaic covenant, because the Mosaic covenant, in terms of the old covenant, is no longer alive and operating. So, you can't join the body of Moses. You can say that you're going to be a Jew by practice. You can become a practicing Jew. I'm not talking about somebody that was born in a Jewish family and decides to practice Judaism. By the fact that they're born in a Jewish family, they are of the seed of Abraham, aren't they? I'm talking about a Gentile trying to practice Judaism. A Gentile that doesn't believe in Christ but wants to become a Jew will never become a Jew. You could have when the window was open under the Old Covenant, but that window's not open anymore. So any Gentile that is trying to become a Jew in an Old Covenant sense, couldn't do it if they wanted to. They might think they're doing it. The law of the stranger and the window that allowed people that were not of the bloodline of Abraham to enter into the Abrahamic covenant was only limited, by the way. You couldn't have all the benefits of the Abrahamic covenant if you were a Gentile. There were some things you could not do. You were treated essentially as an equal according to the law, meaning you were protected by the legal system. But there are some things you could not do in Jewish society without being a blood Jew. Some things in the window, if you want to call it, of the law of the stranger, you were allowed to do. You could eat of the Passover if you were circumcised. Not only could you become a proselyte, but you could become a proselyte that was more of a practicing proselyte, if you want to use that term. That just means you've really committed to it. You're not just there to show up and visit their services. You really are a part of it. But even then, you didn't have the same rights. Do you think any Gentile could become a priest? Do you think any Gentile, even if he'd been a proselyte and his family had been proselytes for generations, do you think any Gentile could become a king of Israel? Well, yes and no. Absolutely no? No Gentile blood? Uh, well, partially. But, okay, uh, all right. Way back in the family. <laughs> Four generations, yeah. <laughs> for Ruth the Moabitess' blood right. to be in the body of David. 
But realistically speaking, anybody that was a full-blooded Gentile, if they became a proselyte of Israel, could never become king, could never become a priest. There are just some things you could not do. And today, any Gentile that would want to enjoin themselves to the seed of Abraham in a religious sense, to become a practicing Jew, practice Judaism, does not make them a Jew in God's eyes. It does differentiate, then, who really the body of Moses is. The body of Moses are the physical seed of Abraham. And anybody that was enjoined to that body under the law of the stranger. But that can't happen anymore, like I told you. So the only people that can be in the body of Moses today are physical Israelites. How about intermarriage? Give me an example of what you're getting at. Like a Jew and a Gentile marry. A blood Jew marries a blood Gentile. Right. If you were to use, and I don't know if God still does, honestly, Sister Wilma, but if you were to use the Old Testament concept of what purifies the blood in terms of marriage, you'd have to go through at least four generations. The first generation, say, is a full-blood Jew and a full-blood Gentile. Their children would have to marry full-blood Jews, and their children have to marry full-blood Jews, and their children have to marry full-blood Jews before you truly could make that argument. But I want you to understand, I'm being real strict with this. I'm following the letter of the law. And sometimes the spirit of the law is wider than the letter. Which means if God wants to consider somebody a Jew that's just a half-blooded Jew in in a first-generational sense, say a Jew and a Gentile have a child, and that child more or less is half-Jew and half-Gentile, God can consider them a Jew if he chooses to. He can do anything he wants. He can override any of those type of stipulations if he chooses to. Ruth is an example of that. Though God didn't really break his own law. He still waited the required number of generations before he really raised up anybody from that bloodline. He accepted Ruth, didn't he? Mm -hmm. He accepted uh, Rahab. Rahab. Thank you, Melanie. He can overrule his own structural rules. But the norm and the vast majority follows the rule. It's just very seldom that God does go around his own rules because he's doing something. He wants to make a picture. Part of that picture is a picture of mercy. That's an incredible thing. That God can have mercy even when, according to his own rules, there's no room for it. So Israel, there's the body of Moses. Jude said that Michael the archangel and the devil disputed over the body of Moses. That body of Moses they disputed over was not his physical bones. It wouldn't have meant anything for the devil to get a hold of Moses' physical bones. That wouldn't have accomplished anything. That was the children of Israel the devil was trying to attack. And Michael the archangel and Satan, the devil, disputed over the body of Moses. Then there's the body of Christ. And I'm going to also say that you ought not just to watch the body of Christ, but watch all of what God is doing within the parameters of his kingdom. His kingdom's bigger than Jesus' body. People that belong to God are dispersed in a much wider way than people that are within his body. And then you ought to watch what else? Brother Staller told you a little bit ago. The The body of the beast or the beast. Now I'm going to just say the beast, though the body of the beast makes it sound uniform, doesn't it? The body of Christ, the body of Moses, the body of the beast. But I'm going to add another one that if you say the body of this, it might sound a little strange. Because I think there is another element you need to watch. There is the body of Moses, the body of Christ. And by extrapolating that out, by extension, also the church in a more general sense, even out to the edges of what we would consider nominal Christianity. But once you cross the edge and you're going into nominal Christianity or Babylon, there's something else you've got to watch for besides just the beast. Unless your concept of the beast is different than mine, there's one other thing you need to watch for. What do you think it is? Who's going to be cast into the lake of fire prior to the millennial reign really establishing itself? At the beginning, who's going to be cast into the lake of fire? 
to either people or groups of people. See, this is the problem. The latter of these two often is presented as if it's an individual person and the former is a group, but I personally think that they both can represent a group. There's two specific symbolic figures that get cast in the lake of fire in the 19th chapter of Revelation at the supper of the great God. Beast and false prophet. The beast and the false prophet. Now the beast is a singular word, isn't it? But I think we'd all agree the beast is a bigger thing than just one person. The beast is a whole system, a whole civil system that involves politics and economics and all the other things that go into making up that type of a system. The false prophet, I think, is as well. I don't make the false prophet out just to be just one man. I think the false prophet is just like the beast. It is a system of false religion. Sometimes there is somebody who is the false prophet that is the highest pinnacle of that system, and there's names for that person in the Bible. The man of sin, the little horn. Those are names for the office of the false prophet, the highest office in that system. I'll talk to you maybe more about it in a little bit, but I'm making the beast and the false prophet out to be whole systems, of which you can't have one great leader rise up over them. There's no doubt. Is that what the church world is? we got a friend that's really hung up on the Antichrist. I just told him a couple weeks ago, I said, well, you know, we really differ on that. We believe that that is the sy- a system that's going to be, you know, prevailing. They just really hung up on it's a person. I'm always amazed, Gary. I, every time I read almost anybody talking about the end time events of almost any denomination, the Antichrist comes up, just like you're describing. And the Antichrist as this end times leader, I'm not sure where they find that anywhere in the Bible. What they're doing is they're overlaying the term Antichrist with the little horn, with the man of sin, with the false prophet. But the term Antichrist is used nowhere in Daniel, used nowhere in the Old Testament. It's used nowhere, anywhere in the New Testament outside of John's epistles. In First and Second John, he mentions the Antichrist, doesn't he? And he states that there isn't just one Antichrist, there's Antichrist many. There's three levels to the understand the Antichrist if you read First John. There is Antichrist, singular. There is Antichrist many, plural. And there's the spirit of Antichrist. Those are three different things, aren't they? But they really dovetail into one when you think it through. Because anybody that denies Jesus is the Christ is anti-Christ. And that's exactly what John said. I've always found it strange, Gary, how many people assume that somebody pretending to be a leader for Christ could be called an antichrist. Because anybody that's an antichrist openly denies that Christ is Lord. So it'd be awful hard to think that somebody that is pretending to represent Christ could also be an antichrist. You see the problem? An antichrist is someone that is refusing to say that Christ is the Messiah. The man of sin isn't saying Christ isn't the Messiah. He's diluting that message with a lot of other false doctrine and paganism and tradition. Through the millennial reigns for the ones that really don't accept Christ and will fight in God and Magog, wouldn't they be called antichrist? That's exactly right, Kevin. Anyone that does not accept Jesus as Christ is Antichrist. That's what John said. We could read through that. It's not very many scriptures. All you could do is read 1 John and 2 John. It essentially says that Antichrist has already come. Doesn't it? See, there's all kinds of problems with the concept that Antichrist is an end times person. Because John says Antichrist has already come. John says Antichrist is a spirit that gets on people. In other words, you got a whole group of people that refuse to believe Jesus is Christ. That's the spirit of Antichrist in that group. 
Then you've got any one person that refuses to believe Jesus Christ is an antichrist. And in the days of the early church, they were facing a lot of antichrists, and primarily the antichrists they were facing were the Jews. Most of the antichrists they were dealing with were the Jews. The Romans wouldn't have had nearly as much of an understanding of what they even meant by their Messiah. But the Jews knew exactly what the Messiah was. They just refused to believe Jesus was their Messiah. So they were antichrists in that sense. So usually what ends up happening is that the title Antichrist gets applied to all these other figures in prophecy. Though there's no reason to do that. There's no precedent to do that. Especially when it's just one author using it. John's the only one who uses that terminology. I don't blend the terminology Antichrist with any of these figures that are false prophets because these false prophets want you to believe in things that are not of God, but they want to blend them with things that are of God. So they're certainly going to say that Jesus is the Christ. But Muhammad's a prophet too, and they want to bring it all into one ecumenical mess. That's not Antichrist. They're willing to say Jesus is the Christ. He's just not the only Christ. Or he's a universal. I've heard this title lately. He's a universal Christ. I'm going to move ahead. We may come back if we have time to this issue of the Antichrist. So there's the body of Moses, which is the nation of Israel. There is the body of Christ. And in the wake of that, if you will, in the ripple of that, there is also the other circles that make up other parts of Christendom that are not necessarily completely outside God's will, but may be limited in their understanding. And then there's the beast. I'm going to talk about that maybe in a little more detail, but let me define the beast because I have heard it taught by some that the beast is synonymous with, say, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. The beast is not a church. And I can show you that in numerous places in the Bible. What confuses people is when the harlot and the beast conjoin themselves together, you've got one system now. And that is what is Babylon. Babylon is not just false religion. Babylon is a church that's married to the world. It's not just false religion. It's false religion that is conjoined to a beastly power. The beast is not false religion. The beast is a political, economic, military. It's a civil power, a civil system. The simplest place to see the beginning of that, to show you why I believe that, is go right back to the book of Daniel, second chapter and on, where Daniel is describing these beasts coming up one after another. Second chapter is the image of Nebuchadnezzar. But you go on a little further and you're going to see five chapters later. You begin to see these pictures of these beasts. There's a ram. There's a he-goat. There's a bear. There's a leopard. You start to see these beasts that come up out of the sea especially. I think anyone reading that would readily agree those beasts are not churches, are they? Those beasts are not systems of religion. Those beasts are kingdoms. And we know what the kingdoms are. It's extremely straightforward. I don't think anybody would come up with a different explanation than this, given that Daniel even interprets some of it for Nebuchadnezzar when he talks about the image. The beasts are very simply the kingdoms that were in Daniel's day and were coming. First, of course, is Babylon. Then after Babylon is who? The Medes and the Persians. Now, often we call that Medo-Persia. If you really wanted to be technically correct, you might just say Persia because the Medes and the Persians didn't last as Medes and Persians very long. That's the reason it's laid over on one side, you know, because the Medes were weaker than the Persians and the Persians became the power. They rose to the power. So Media became a lesser state, if you will, under the authority of Persia eventually. 
And Persia became the great power. And then Persia was conquered by who? Greece. Greece, under Alexander the Great. So Greece was a third of the beasts. And it makes perfect sense in one of the examples that Greece is pictured as a he-goat because that is one of the symbols that they take to be significant towards their nation, a goat. So you had Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, which became the Persian Empire. And then you had Greece. And then you had this terrible, dreadful beast with these great iron teeth, which is Rome. Those were all kingdoms, weren't they? I doubt you would refer to any of those as a religious system, would you? They were primarily civil systems. They did have religious components, though, didn't they? If you want to know where all this finds its birth, it doesn't find its birth in going back to the very first of the eight beasts, which is Egypt, by the way. The very first of the eight beasts you see in Revelation is Egypt. The second beast is Assyria. Those are the two great kingdoms that affected Israel, affected God's people, and interacted with them. They interrelated and interacted with God's people. Can you see how that would be? They were captives in Egypt, weren't they? But that wasn't the end of their interaction with Egypt. It went on for hundreds of years. Sometimes they'd have a treaty with Egypt. Sometimes Egypt would come invading and raiding into Israel. And then Assyria came along some several hundred years after that in terms of their real effect in Israel. It was Assyria that took away the northern tribes. In terms of the prophecy, which is to his people, you know, he's not so much interested in what a nation is doing on the other side of the world that never even had a relationship or interaction with Israel. Sometimes we try to find nations in the Bible that you're going to stretch to try to find them because they don't have any relationship to either Israel or to the church in any direct sense in prophecy, so you're probably not going to find them in the Bible. The nations that are most significant in the Bible are the nations that had a direct interaction with God's people. Those are the ones he considers. So Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. What do we have next? Papal Rome. And then we go into a transition into the eighth beast. We'll talk about that maybe another time. We may get to it. We'll see. But first I want to start at the beginning. We talked about the fact that we have to watch the body of Moses, the body of Christ, and the church world in general. We've got to watch the beast. And if you want to watch the beast, all you really need to do is pay attention to what's going on in the world around you. Pay attention to what's going on in the economies of the world. Pay attention to what's going on in the military actions in this world. Pay attention to what political systems are rising and falling. Pay attention to what cultural ideologies, I'm not talking about religious, because some people aren't religious at all, but they have cultural beliefs, don't they? There's people that have a lot of cultural and societal beliefs, like we're dealing with right now in some of these big challenges in our culture, that aren't necessarily by their definition. Everything's religious by God's definition, you know. But by their definition, they're not religious at all. They could care less what God thinks. They don't even believe in God, but they do believe in the rights of this, that, or the other. So there's some of those cultural conditions. Watch the cultural conditions that are going on in the world around you. Watch the warfare going on in the world. Watch the economic conditions. That is watching the beast. Then finally, the false prophet. What is false religion doing? False religion sometimes is cloaked as Christianity. Certainly the Catholic Church fits in that category. The Catholic Church is not part of the kingdom of God. Catholic Church is part of Babylon. It is part of false religion. So there's those four things that we've got to keep our eyes on. I've been watching a lot of the current events going on, not just the newsworthy events, but also things that are going on underneath the surface that aren't maybe as advertised in the news. There are a lot of things happening concurrently. Concurrently means more than one thing happening at the same time coming together. Um, 
There's other words for that. I have to think about it. Confluence. Confluence is a word. Or concurrence. They really almost mean the same thing. It's like streams coming together, and they come into one major tributary. The events going on in the world around us are very interrelated. That's why I've felt such a burden for months now to be stating some warnings to you about what's going on in the world and where we have to stand on it. Because there are things that are starting to dovetail together, and these events are becoming confluent enough or concurrent enough that whenever that happens, that there's multiple events happening in a very short chronological period, it's almost certain there is a shift about to happen. Major critical historical events happen when a lot of events come together in a concurrent way. That means they all come together at one time. There's a trip hammer effect of events going on in the world right now. Some of them are affected by each other, but all of them are to some extent connected. One thing over here you might not think will affect us, but it will reach us. It's like the events going on out in the world. If you think we can just shut our doors, lock the doors, close the windows put up some drapes, and just ignore the world outside of you, it's not going to happen like that. The world is going to invade your home. It's going to invade the church. It's going to do everything it can to drown out any resistance. That's why it's called a sea. If you've been underwater, you can relate to this. When you're underwater, it's a very heavy pressure, isn't it? The pressure of the water, and the deeper you go, the more water is over your head, the heavier the pressure, isn't it? The deeper down you are, to simplify it. That's true in the world as well. You start getting down in there, it's going to be a lot harder the deeper you get into the sea of mankind to get out, the deeper you allow yourself to sink. And this world would like to wash over the walls of the church. I think there's some critical things going on. Let me lead up to it by mentioning a couple of historical events in each of these groups. I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list. I just want to give you a few key points. Many of these you know already, but I want you to have them fresh in your mind. The body of Moses. Let's go back just to the 20th century. Can you see some significant, historical, critical events going on in the body of Moses in the last 120 years? What are some of them? They became a nation. What was the prelude of them becoming a nation, Cindy? Do you know? What allowed them to become a nation? There are several things, by the way. Both world wars were instrumental the two most large-scale, geographically speaking, devastating wars this world has ever faced. And do you realize that out of both of those came the components to restore Israel? Out of all that horrific carnage created by World War I, and even worse in World War II, and yet that's what it took. That was the price to open the door for Israel to be restored. The Balfour Declaration. Mm-hmm. Do you know when the Balfour Declaration was made, anybody? I just remember the, the thing. I mean, you're going to need to tell me about it. November 2nd of 1917, the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, he basically sent a declaration to Baron Rothschild, who is one of the most powerful men on the planet, also a very significant leader of the Jewish Zionist movement at that time, they were trying to establish a place where they could live unmolested. This was written by Lord Balfour to Baron Rothschild from a British foreign secretary to a very prominent leader, principally in the banking and finance industry, but very powerful in the Zionist movement. This was an official government letter, by the way. It wasn't just his opinion. This is the statement he said. 
His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. That is the guts of the Balfour Declaration. And what it essentially did is it opened up the door that the British Empire is willing to allow there to be a homeland for the Jews. If the beginning of the Balfour Declaration in the time period of World War I opened the door, but there was no place yet for them, and there wasn't a significant enough international crisis to create a push for that. But World War II created that crisis. When you have six million Jews losing their lives in gruesome and horrifying ways in these terrible concentration camps, and all of that comes to the light of day, and it opened the door that had already been sanctioned by the Balfour Declaration, and now the sympathy and the sentiment of people is tenderized by what had been going on with these terrible wars, and it allowed for the Jews to begin their return to their homeland. There's a beautiful scripture that talks about this in the 16th chapter of Jeremiah. 14th verse says, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And the next verse says, But the Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel from the lands of the north, and from all the lands whither he had driven them, and I will bring them again into their land that I gave to their fathers. So it's a contrast. You're not going to be bragging anymore about how great and mighty your God was that took you out of Egypt. He's going to do a much bigger thing than just Egypt. He's going to take you out of all the countries he scattered you in and draw you back to your homeland. In this beautiful poetic statement, the 16th verse, I will send for fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and from every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For mine eyes are upon all their ways. They are not hid from my face, neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. Now those fishers and hunters... There were some people that reached out to them in in the sense of trying to deliver them, and then there were some people that reached out to them to try to destroy them. Both of those elements, individuals who were trying to help the Jews and individuals who were trying to hurt the Jews, both caused the pressure points that drove them back to their homeland. I want you to notice this 17th verse. This isn't all favorable. I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. It's going to be a very difficult method and painful method I'm going to use to do it. Because why? Mine eyes are upon all their ways. They're not hid from my face. Neither is their iniquity hid from my eyes. And first I will recompense their iniquity and their sin double because they have defiled my land. They have filled mine inheritance with the carcasses, their detestable and abominable things. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity, and things wherein there is no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. How are they going to know that? Because anybody in their right mind who looks at what God is doing to Israel and through Israel, bringing them back from all the countries, has got to know that this is the God of Israel. Just like anybody looking at what God had done when he parted the Red Sea and brought them up out of Egypt had to know this is the Lord. They should recognize it today. That's what the Balfour Declaration essentially was, Rodney. It opened the door that later the tragedies of World War II would force that door open long enough for enough Jews to plant themselves in the homeland. 
And after May 14th of 1948, they were officially established as a nation. They have continued to face wars. 1956 was a war that they really were somewhat pulled into by some of the other nations that weren't happy about the fact that Egypt had nationalized the Suez Canal. The French and the English in particular did not like the idea that the Egyptians had nationalized that. The Egyptians under Nasser decided to nationalize the Suez Canal, so they actually instigated the Jews to be involved in a strike on the Sinai. And then later in 1967, the Six-Day War of Liberation, when finally they began the retaking of Jerusalem. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Even in the 80s, faced what you would consider small-scale war. They have faced war and terror on every hand, haven't they? The fact that they were reestablished in this last century and the incredible methods in which it was done are one of these events that I'm talking about that are leading up to all this concurrency of activity going on right now. Part of yesterday's events are part of that. There are things happening that are history-making. And when there's a whole number of them happening all at once, you can be sure there is a shift about to happen in the fabric of history. It is interesting that right in the same time period that Israel was getting ready to become a nation, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. What do you think might be significant about the Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered? Would it do anything to add any validity to the Jewish people or to their Bible? or? It was right in between November 1946 and February 1947 when these Bedouin shepherds were going into the caves and pulling out pieces of this pottery and these scrolls that they first began to discover it. And the excavations of the Qumran community and the Dead Sea area continued heavily until 1956. So it went on around 10 years from the time that the Bedouin shepherds first found these pottery vessels and these scrolls up until the time that they had really felt like they found pretty much everything that was there. The Dead Sea Scrolls were an incredible testimony to the veracity of the Jewish scriptures. They have a shrine in Jerusalem called the Shrine of the Book. The top of it almost looks like the top of a scroll cap, the building. And inside there's a huge glass circular display case. And wrapped around that display case is the Book of Isaiah, all the parchments that they found in the Book of Isaiah. The vast majority, if not almost all, the Book of Isaiah was found. And they found that it is precise to the Masoretic text that we use for the King James Version. The Masoretic text meaning the Hebrew scriptures that the Masoretes, the Masoretic scribes copied through the Dark Ages that we use to be the basis for the Old Testament we're reading is exactly what the Dead Sea Scrolls had. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are dated somewhere, depending on the scrolls, from the first century AD even to a couple hundred years BC. It adds a validity to the transmission of the Bible. You can go back almost 2,000 years and find that it states the same thing. There was no changes made in the transmission and the translation. That's significant. But that, to me, is tremendously significant that they would find the scriptures to validate that God had kept his scriptures pure Amen. in terms of the translation for 2,000 years. Amen. Right at the time he's bringing Israel to birth, you don't think that's a confluence of events? And they're still under constant political and military pressure now as far as Israel is concerned. And as far as the area around them, the danger in the Middle East has not ceased. It's accentuated. It's become exaggerated. The political upheaval that's going on over there, the overturning of governments, you know, they call it the Arab Spring part of that. It's the idea that there's this new flowering and everything's going to be good now. We're getting rid of all these old dictators. Strangely enough, some of those old dictators, as evil as they were, actually kept some of the complete lunacy in check. I can give you an example. 
They just made a movie about this here lately. I'm sure the movie is nowhere near historically as accurate as what the actual events are because history is history and Hollywood's a different story. But what happened in Iran in the 70s? The Shah of Iran was a brutal dictator, just like most of the Middle Eastern dictators. But he was willing to work with the United States. He was willing to keep the peace. And when they overturned the Shah, it didn't suddenly become a utopian society. Same brutality that the Shah carried out under his regime, the Ayatollahs carried out under their regime, and sometimes even worse. And instead of having a brutal dictator who you can work with, now you've got brutal dictators you can't work with. See how it changes? Neither one's a good thing, but it's a whole lot better to know the person isn't trying to attack you or in the case of what's going on right now, developing a nuclear weapon. Iran is on a hectic race to develop a nuclear weapon. If you don't think that's a considerable confluence of critical events, the fact that there's such political upheaval in the Middle East in these nations and people are being replaced and overturned and new powers are rising, they're hardline Islamic powers that are rising in these positions. It's not getting better. At the same time, Iran is on this hectic race to produce nuclear weapons. I can promise you if they get close enough, they're going to get struck. If you want to know how somebody is going to act, all you have to do is watch how they've acted. And unless they've had a conversion experience, <laughs> there's some people that did a lot of bad things when they were younger. Don't judge them on that. They might have done some bad 20 years ago. If they've been forgiven and converted from their ways... But if somebody continues to do the same type of practices, you probably can guess what they're going to do the next time they get tested with that practice, right? Do you realize what kind of practices that Israel does when they feel threatened? Israel does not wait to be attacked very often. They're very preemptive. A lot of the wars they entered into were on the cusp of being started, and Israel kicked the ball, more or less. <laughs> now, they were going to be attacked. It wasn't that Israel started the war truly they would have been overwhelmed if they hadn't been preemptive in some of those wars. And usually this was their first line of attack. They destroyed the enemy's air force. While the enemies were getting ready and bragging and talking on all their television channels about how we're about to wipe them out, we're going to drive them into the sea, we're going to consume them, Israel, instead of talking, put their pilots in their planes, flew over there, shot, down, shot up their ports, and flew home. It ended a lot of the possibilities for those nations to invade them with the kind of power they'd have liked to have done. Israel is a very preemptive, offensive type of a nation. Unlike the United States, we get knocked around before we react. We might react with force, but we put up with things. Israel will not put up with anything. If they think Iran is close enough to a nuclear weapon, they will preemptively strike Iran before Iran ever can strike them. In fact, I even heard here just lately that the Israeli prime minister and our president are going to be meeting, and one of the things they said that some of the top brass supposedly leaked is that they are going to be discussing the fact that there's going to be a perfect window of opportunity to strike Iran this summer if their nuclear program gets to that point. And they're not going to slow down. Iran does not care what the West has to say. They are not going to allow our government to dictate to them how they're going to run their country, which is different under the Ayatollahs. The Shah would have worked with the United States, as brutal as he was, but the brutal Ayatollahs will not work with anybody. And there's some of the danger of the upheaval that's going on in the Middle East is you've got individuals who you might have been able to work with as bad as they were replaced by hardliners that will work with nobody. And they are religious zealots and jihadists and do not care about their lives to the extent that some of the others want to hold their fortunes and have their treasures and continue to be rich and powerful. These folks are much more religious zealots than they are uh, materialist. So it creates a very different situation, I think. 
And then the church, I'll briefly say a few things about that. You may not realize this, but in the last century, just to use the 20th century as a benchmark, more Christians were killed for their faith in the 20th century than all other centuries combined. Now, we can't relate to that because when we read something like Fox's Book of Martyrs, or we read Diabine's history of the Reformation of the Church, or other books that will give you a history of some of the things that happened, we see all this brutality going on where people are being burned at the stake and people are having their heads removed and everything else just for the sake of the Bible or just for the sake of one specific doctrine. In our day, some people in the United States would never lay their lives down for the doctrine of water baptism like people did a few hundred years ago. Do you realize just the doctrine of water baptism, between the idea of whether you need to be fully immersed or whether you can baptize an infant and the details that go into that, people died for that doctrine. We're willing to surrender almost any doctrine just to get along with the neighbors. And until we realize the same level of importance in our doctrine that they had, there will not be great heroes of the faith in this generation until we have the same passionate, driven motivation to stand for what we know is truth and never to surrender at any cost. That's what they were willing to do for the truths they felt that they had found. But in this last century, the last report I heard, it's a book that was just written by an Italian news writer that did a lot of research. And I really wonder if he included all the martyrs that were martyred by the Catholic Church. They're estimating there's been about 70 million Christians killed in all of history. 45 million killed in the 20th century. 45 out of 70 million Christians that have been killed in all history were killed last century. And while we're in the West, in this peaceful enclave, this secure place, they're dying out there for their faith. On top of that, Bible-believing churches are slowly being pressured out of their Bible beliefs by cultural sensitivity, if you want to call it that. You know, we've got to be sensitive to other cultures. And then even among us, we are still restoring what was broken decades ago. We began doing that by establishing relationship, and I think that was a little bit harder on people that are more interested in dealing with doctrine. But that is, I think, how God intended it to be. First, we learn to love each other. Then we can work on the nitty-gritty things that are bound to separate you if you don't love each other. If you've got issues that are fiery, passionate issues that you feel different about in terms of doctrine, it's going to be awfully hard to get along with someone you don't even like to deal with working those things out. But if you deeply love somebody and you know, I can think of several ministers like this right now, that I do not agree with their doctrine. I am passionately in disagreement with their doctrine, but I love them. I really love them. It creates a dynamic that allows for us to try to work towards not only the unity of the faith, but the unity of the spirit. There are two different unities in Ephesians 4. There's the unity of the spirit and the unity of the faith. And the unity of the spirit in Ephesians 4 comes before the unity of the faith. We've got to be unified in relationship, and we can get unified in doctrine and order as well. But right now, we're still wrestling with some of the edges that have to be defined and established and even ground down and smoothed over. There's some things we're going to have to grind down a little bit and smooth it over so it doesn't rub so raw if it doesn't need to be there. Then I mentioned the false prophet. That may be one of the last things I'll talk about, but I'll just briefly say we ought to be paying attention to what's going on as the false prophet. I don't limit that to the Catholic Church. And I think that that is a very serious mistake of history to limit it to the Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church wasn't even the only church. Alongside the Catholic Church, at least from its inception, there was a Greek Orthodox Church. So you can't make the argument that the Catholic Church is the fallen church alone, because there was a Greek Orthodox Church that taught plenty of the same false doctrines the Catholic Church taught. 
And when they divided, both of those powers continued on. They were somewhat parallel. They didn't intermingle too much, especially after 1054. They didn't intermingle very much. But both of those powers are false churches. So you can't just point at the Catholic Church. It's bigger than just the Catholic Church. Though the Catholic Church has been at the center of it for most of us in the West. That's why we probably relate to that a little bit better. Catholics, though, or if we want to use them as an example in terms of what's going on in the false prophet element, Catholics are facing some very difficult things right now. Not only have they been bombarded this last century with all kinds of sexual immorality charges, one after another after another, they have all kinds of other things going on as well. There's always scandals at the Vatican Bank and how they're managing their money. There's all kinds of political infighting that goes on in the Vatican. It is not a unified group. They're fighting all the time among themselves. They're dealing with quite a few different things. They're losing members too. The Catholic Church is not gaining ground in terms of membership. Very few churches right now on the planet are gaining ground in terms of membership. Most churches are becoming older in terms of their demographic and smaller in terms of their numbers. And both those things put together are dangerous because if your demographic is older and your numbers are smaller, what happens in the next generation? It's true of all of us. We have to worry about what the next generation is going to hold if there is another generation for us to be concerned about. Benedict XVI was a hardliner in a much stronger way than John Paul was. John Paul was much more liberal, and Benedict was much more hardcore conservative. It'll be interesting to see what the next pope will be like. Because the pressure the Catholic Church is facing, like so many churches is, if you want to be able to relate to culture, if you want to be able to reach people, if you want to be able to grow as a church, if culture is going a certain direction and you don't go that way, you'll be left behind and die. That is what is constantly being told to the church. If you want to keep surviving, you've got to make some adjustments. You've got to change your traditions. It will be interesting to see if anybody with enough power steps into the void of the papacy and is willing to make some liberal adjustments. That would really bring some walls down and could possibly cause a lot of increase in the Catholic Church. If you get somebody pressured under cultural or political pressures that thinks we've got to renew the Catholic Church, we've got to put aside some of our old beliefs so we can reach this present generation. Could happen. That's why I said I've been feeling to talk about this confluence of events going on right now. We have got things going on in the world around us that could dramatically change the course of history. Right now. Within a few weeks, if they keep true to their goal, which is their goal is the middle of March is when the conclave, they're hoping to elect a new pope. But it doesn't always work that way. There's times it took them years to elect a new pope. But their goal is to elect a new pope fairly quickly. I hear comments made sometimes when I'm talking to people in the Nelma pastor. They'll ask questions about the Catholic Church. Well, people always used to say the Catholic Church was this, that, and the other. They sure aren't anything now. Well, you're right. In terms of their effect in the public arena right now, in terms of their reputation, in terms of their power and growth, they don't appear to be much. But don't forget that the beast was given a deadly wound. Nigh unto death that beast was before he was healed. No matter how weak they may become, I believe without doubt that the Catholic Church is going to be very central to the false prophet element in this last day. I'm not just saying they're all of it, but they're going to be very central to it. Pope Benedict XVI being the first pope to, this is a misleading statement when they say the first pope to step down in 600 years, because if you make a study of the, and it is properly pronounced papacy, by the way, if you make a study of the papacy, you will find out that a lot of them were stepped down, some by force, some by being murdered. It was a real brutal place to be sitting at some points in history. 
But there are essentially just a handful of others that have stepped down, and that hasn't been done for almost 600 years. Almost. If he would have waited just a couple more years, it would have been 600 years that it's been since the Pope stepped down. So they really don't even know how to handle this right now. They didn't know what to do with him in retirement. They didn't know what kind of clothes to let him wear. I just heard today that they originally thought, well, it doesn't mean he's going to be in Bermuda shorts. That just means that they wondered if he would have to now dress as a regular priest in black to show that he's not the Pope. But they allowed him to continue to wear his white vestments. It's going to be interesting, a Pope Emeritus that is now wearing the same garments as the Pope. And I guess they're going to let him go to Castle Gandolfo probably for a few weeks till they have a new Pope. That's the summer home of the Pope. And then once they have a new Pope, they're going to let him move back to the Vatican and live at the Vatican. That's going to be awfully unusual, having a retired Pope room in the halls with the new Pope. Before we talk about that in specifics, I want to mention a couple of quick things about the beast. One of the most important things I think you could watch in terms of the beast, even though I'm not sure you could argue the beast has fully coalesced and come to life yet, it's alive. The beast is alive. It just hasn't stood up yet. See the difference? The beast is more than alive. It's just still laying down on its side. It doesn't want to stand up and take a shot yet. It doesn't want to stand up until it knows. I'm talking about a whole system, you realize. I'm not talking about a person. The beast doesn't want to stand until it doesn't think it can be resisted. When the beast feels like it has enough power that when it rises, nothing can resist it, it'll stand. It won't stand until it thinks it can't be resisted. Here's some things to watch in the beast. Watch the economic flow of what's going on in the world right now. The economies of this world are a precursor to bringing in the beast, whether you realize that or not. The greatest power on the face of the earth right now is not military power. What do you think the most powerful thing on the face of the earth is? I'm not talking about spiritually. I'm talking about a physical, tangible thing. Currency. Currency. Finance. Money. You can't have a military without money. If you don't have any money to buy ammunition, how long is your military going to be able to fight? If nobody's going to give you the money to feed them, how long are they going to be able to fight? Money is the true power. It's not the military. It's not even ideology. Because most people, unfortunately, will sell out their ideology for security or for money. The greatest power on this earth right now, in a carnal sense, is the monetary system. So if you want to watch what could (coughs) sweep the beast on its feet, watch the economy of the world. There's nothing that would open up a greater door of opportunity for the beast to rise than for the world economy to collapse. Why do you think that would be? One world currency. Well, there's things that would come. That's true. There's things that would come of it. A global Global. fiscal policy and so on. There'll be things people will be willing to do. They can control people. They can control the money and control your food and everything else. Rodney's right, but he's a little further down the track. Down the line. What you and Brother Kosa said, Leslie, is right really where I want to start with, and that is if you control the monetary supply, you control everything. You control whether people eat. You control whether people have a roof over the head. You control whether they have gas in their car. You control whether they're protected by the police force or whether there's a military to protect their nation. You control all of it. You control whether they can get a loan to get a vehicle. You control whether they can get a loan to get a house. You control everything if you control money. If you control the monetary supply, you have the power. And here's how that affects us directly. If the monetary systems of this world collapse, men will gladly surrender their liberties for security. It's happened many times in history. You get into a desperate economic situation or a drought or a famine or something else, 
Go back to a Bible example. Joseph. The people of Egypt gladly surrendered a portion of their property for the security of knowing they'd have food that Joseph, through the revelation of God, had stored. You can gain power over a people very quickly if you take away everything they have and then you have the storehouse. And that storehouse always goes back to a monetary supply to provide that storehouse to fill it. The global economic system is like a web work or a domino set. It all is linked. Everything is linked. If any great powers collapse, they will drag other powers down with them. It may take time before it affects them directly, but they will drag them down with them. We've been seeing in Europe the collapse of nations over there in terms of their economy, and they fight back and forth over whether or not they're going to have what they call austerity. Austerity, from our standpoint, would mean this. In order for us to survive as a nation, we have got to cut your Social Security in half. We've got to cut your government benefits, people that might be receiving food aid or Medicaid or Medicare or whatever else they're getting from the government. We're going to have to cut all those benefits. How many people do you think are going to vote for somebody to do that? Probably not very many. When Italy, they just voted the anti-austerity group in. And Italy right now is the second of all the great economies, the powerful economies, Italy is the second highest in terms of national debt to GDP. 120%. The highest is Japan. Japan has 211%. GDP is how much the whole nation brings in in terms of what they're producing, the gross domestic product. The United States is now over 100%. They're at around 102% GDP to debt. That's a dangerous place for a nation to be. Now, there's other nations that are, but the ones that are high are very small nations. There's about 19 or 20 of the great economic powerhouses in the world, and of them... Japan is the worst in terms of GDP to debt than Italy, than the United States. And some are estimating now that if Italy collapses, that it may just sweep the rest of Europe down with it. I do believe a massive crash or a critical change will, will, not might, will occur at some point. Now, when I say a critical change, there's a lot of things that could happen. They could change the monetary system. They could do what they did in Roosevelt's day and demand that all precious metals and other things get turned into the government and then they devalue. They did it. They devalue the value of a thing. Then they make you turn it in. Then they bring the value back up. Some of you older saints know they did that. They devalued gold and silver and then they bought it from you at that value. Then after they bought it from you, they let it go back up in price and they use it to pay their debt. Now that is criminal. How nations get away with this without an uprising, it's amazing. They could do something like that. They could go back on a gold standard, which we've been off for 40 years. But I mentioned here lately that the average life expectancy of fiat currency is 30 years. Fiat currency is when a government no longer has anything backing up their legal tender. They say, this is the full faith and credit of the United States backing this up. You can just trust us. Trust us that it's always going to be worth a dollar. The average lifespan of fiat currency, which is what that is, is 30 years. We've been doing this for 40. How much longer do you think it can go? So the economic underbelly of the major financial world powers is critically wounded, and it's band-aided together right now. They just keep letting it bleed and putting band-aids on it, and you know what's going to happen at some point. So what could rise from the dust of a collapse? This is where Rodney, I think, was headed with his statement. One, a completely different monetary system. A global monetary system could certainly 
rise. The currency base for this world, what they base the price of things on still is the dollar. If the dollar were to completely collapse, they would have to replace it with something, wouldn't they? So if that were to happen, we could have a completely different monetary system than they have right now. Wouldn't be surprising to me if they just didn't give you money at all. It was just lines of credit. Everything's about that now anyways, isn't it? So there could be a new monetary system. There could be new forms of government. I'm saying all this for a purpose. There could be entirely new structural forms of government. <coughs> the idea of national sovereignty might get set aside. Now, there are some nations that I don't think will be willing to do that right now. The Islamic nations, for example, are not about to give you their national sovereignty. Some believe the Islamic nations are the Ten Kings, and you realize that the Ten Kings gave their power to the beast for a little while. You almost have to wonder if the Islamic nations or the Ten Kings, if they'd be willing to surrender their power to a one-world government of some kind in their own minds temporarily, especially if they get a chance to strip the harlot naked and abuse her, which is exactly what it says a couple verses later, if they want to destroy the harlot. Who's the harlot? Well, all the other religions but them in their eyes. And you better believe Christianity and Judaism are at the very top of that pecking order in terms of Islam's enemies. So we are building up toward a crisis. And I think the answer to the crisis from the standpoint of man has already been formulated and the machinery is already in place. The fiscal powers of this world know what's coming. They know this is unsustainable. They already have the answer, the formula, and the machinery in place so that when the crisis happens, they can use that crisis to accomplish what they've been waiting to accomplish. It could take a short amount of time or a long amount of time, but honestly, saints, I think it is the precursor to the things that we have talked about for decades. When we talk about the persecution of the church and we talk about the terrible events that are coming, all those things, I think, are going to be part of the confluence of events that happen that all come together. And after the trip hammer blows of those events, out of the dust is coming something. I said this regarding something else, but any event that happens, natural disaster, collapse, anything, economically or otherwise, is either initiated by God or it's allowed by him. Either he caused it or he allowed it. Some things he causes. He initiates them or he allows them, which means he knows it's going to happen and he allows it to happen. He could stop it. What is the beast? We've been talking about it. I want to ask you, what is the beast? It's a whole system. And what goes into it? You mentioned the kingdoms in Daniel. Well, what makes up a kingdom? There's all kinds of things. There's commerce. There's religion. There's places. That it's, all, it's everything. Can you possibly lump it into the lost world? I would say that if you are not in the kingdom of God, you're in the kingdom of the devil. There is no neutral, no man's land in between. You're either in the kingdom of God or you're in the kingdom of the prince of this world. What a woman rides the beast. That's the second question. Who's the woman that rides the beast? When is she going to ride him? How does she ride him? She's ridden the beast before. When the woman rides the beast is when the church conjoins itself to the civil power. That's proof enough that the beast is not the false religious power. The harlot's the false religious power. The collapse of the global system will allow that to get put into place. I think it will. I haven't felt as if God has revealed to me exactly how it's going to happen, but I have been feeling lately like he's been opening my mind to some things where I start to see the pieces. When you see in the 17th chapter of Revelation the woman seen upon this beast, this harlot, and on her head is written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, 
the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Babylon is not just false religion. I want to stress that. Babylon is a conjoining of false religion and civil power. And the way that you can go back and trace that from its origins is all the way back to the very first example of it in the Bible, which is where? Tower of Babel. Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, it's a tower and a city that they built. Story sometimes, the Tower of Babel. It's not just the Tower of Babel, it's a tower and a city. The tower was the religious part, the city was the civil part. And when you put those two together, you've created a system that is a system of civil and religious power in opposition to God's power. Any civil and religious system that is not under the authority of God is in opposition to God. And there was a time I truly believed that the United States was under the authority of God. When the United States removed itself from being under the authority of God, it became God's opponent. And that's a dangerous place to be as a nation. You make yourself the enemy of God. I'm not going to talk about the Ten Kings right here, but I do want to talk about the false prophet. And I want to stress what I said earlier. I don't see the false prophet just as one individual, though there have been false prophets. There have been men who truly fulfilled the office of the false prophet. The man of sin is an office that's not always the same person. There may be a person that's a man of sin in a certain generation, and it's a different person in a different generation. And I do parallel it in my interpretation with the beast. The beast is a system of civil power. The false prophet is a system. And it sounds strange to say that. Well, that's a singular thing. It's a prophet. Yeah, and it's a beast too, isn't it? So they're both singular in that there is one system. There's one system of civil power. There's one system of false religion. Now, at times, there is a power that rises to the pinnacle of that. You might say, that's the man of sin. That's the false prophet. And without doubt, the papacy has filled that place in history. And it's going to fill it again. Here's three scriptures that mention the false prophet. Revelation 16, 13, where it talks about the three unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. The second one is in Revelation 19, 20, that I mentioned here earlier when the beast was taken and the false prophet with him, and they were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It's after Jesus returns with the bride. And then in Revelations 20, verse 10, it's just a sideline reference to that, that the devil's going to be cast in the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are. There were four principal popes that resigned before him in a willing way, and it, it's not hard to remember them. There were two Gregories, and now with him, two Benedicts, and one Celestine. Benedict IX was the first that willingly stepped down. I don't know if I'd call it willingly or not. Benedict IX was elected as the Pope in 1032. Benedict IX was an extremely immoral young man. He was elected, they don't know exactly how old he was, somewhere between 18 and 20 years of age he became the Pope. He had a lot of immorality issues, not only with women, but with people of the same sex. And he turned the Vatican into an orgy house his family was extremely powerful. They had already had two popes out of that family. And so they basically bought him the position. And he was in that position and caused such a mess that eventually his godfather, who became the next pope, basically bribed him to step down. His godfather was Gregory VI. 
A council of bishops met with him later and felt like it wasn't appropriate that he had bribed the other individual to step down, so they asked him to step down. So there's the first two. They were back to back. You had Benedict the Ninth and Gregory the Sixth, And then Celestine V was elected in 1294. And his story is somewhat humorous because he didn't want to be the Pope to begin with. He was a 79-year-old elderly Benedictine monk. And when the Pope that was before him passed away, who was Nicholas IV, they began their conclave to elect a new Pope, and they still hadn't elected one two years later. And Celestine sent them a letter, not because he wanted to be Pope, but because he really thought the church had to have a leader. He sent them a letter and basically said, if you don't elect a Pope, the divine wrath of God is about to fall on all of you cardinals that are in conclave. The dean of the College of Cardinals, who's the senior cardinal over the College of Cardinals, I don't know if in a state of fear that they were being cursed or what it was, immediately yelled out, let him become the Pope. And everybody validated it right away, voted him in. He didn't want to be the Pope. He was 79 years old. He loved his simple life. He wanted nothing to do with the papacy. They went and dragged him there, basically, to become the Pope. I guess he shouldn't open his mouth about how they needed to elect one. And after he attained that position, in the first few weeks, one of his very first dictates, he is the one that allowed, by the way, Benedict XVI to be able to make this decision. It was Celestine who made the dictate that popes can retire. That if they choose to, they can step down willingly. And then within three months, he carried out on the rule that he made and retired. And he said, I'm just going to go back to my humble life that I had before, and I don't want to be bothered. But the next pope coming on the scene didn't trust that. He felt like people would try to get him back into power. So after he became the pope, he chased him down. They chased the poor man all over the countryside. Finally, they took him prisoner and imprisoned him until he died some 10 months later. And then Gregory XII was the last. He was in 1415. So you see if Benedict had been able to make it to 2015, it would have been exactly 600 years. 1415, Gregory XII resigned. He had been the Pope for 10 years, and he was in the middle of a tremendous schism in the church called the Great Western Schism, where they actually had three people all claiming to be Pope at one time, and the bishops wanted there to be peace, so he volunteered to step down. And that was the last Pope that stepped down prior to Benedict XVI. I know this is being bandied around the news media right now. I'm sure it's on online news sites about the prophecy of the popes. And Petrus Romanus, if you know what that means in Latin, Peter the Roman, the last pope that's coming. The prophecy of the popes is a series of very strange, short, cryptic sayings. There's 112 of them. They're each supposed to apply to describing a different pope. And supposedly, if you count the 112 from when the prophecy would have began, then Benedict XVI was the next to the last in the line. This is the last statement that it says at the end of this prophecy. In the final persecution of the Holy Roman Church, there will sit Peter the Roman, who will pasture his sheep in many tribulations. And when these things are finished, the city of seven hills, which is Rome, will be destroyed, and the dreadful judge will judge his people. That's the last statement of the prophecies. So there are people that believe, and there's even been books and videos and everything out now about Petrus Romanus, Peter the Roman, who's coming the next pope. Who put those together? People. Who did that? 1595. A Benedictine monk, writing a book about the history of the Benedictine order, claimed that one of the bishops of Ireland, the Bishop of Armagh, had written these prophecies, a Saint Malachi, or Malachi, depending on how you pronounce it. 
They claim that he wrote all these down. Now, he had died 400 years before this. Benedictine monk wrote this down. One of St. Malachi's contemporaries that wrote a biography about him, Bernard of Clairvaux, mentioned nothing about these prophecies. He told all about the life of St. Malachi, but said nothing about him writing any prophecies. Then it had been 400 years since St. Malachi had supposedly made these prophecies, and there was no written record of any of these prophecies. And suddenly this Benedictine monk, Arnold de Wyan, wrote down these 112 prophecies, and he even claimed himself. They've never been in print that he was aware of, but he wanted to make sure that these prophecies were presented in 1595. And he did attribute them to St. Malachi, who never in any history was mentioned as having written any of these prophecies. That'd be like me saying that I just discovered a writing of John Wesley that nobody ever saw. It's never been in print. And I got a whole book here I put together. It's all John Wesley's statements. But nobody's ever seen it before. It's never been in print. There's no record of this. And he's not alive to argue about it. So, <laughs> The first popes in the list of 112 that come up to 1590. The popes up to 1590 are fairly accurate. Each description sounds like it's describing that pope. So you can see why someone would start reading it and say, look at this, this is amazing. If he wrote this in the 12th century, and look at all these popes that he described them right. Remember, the guy that said he wrote it's writing it five years after 1590. (laughs) Okay, so all the popes up to 1590, but after 1590, it started to get kind of vague and confusing. Ponvenio wrote a history of the popes and of the church 38 years before this, and he made some mistakes in his history that just a little bit later they realized these weren't accurate. He made some mistakes in his history. Those mistakes are the same in these prophecies which means most likely the person writing the prophecies copied the list of what the popes did right out of Panvenio's history. But Panvenio's history, they found out later, is not what really happened in some of the cases. But at this point, I don't really think there's a lot of credibility to it. It could have been kind of a history lesson tonight, but I wanted to talk about some of these current events. I think it is highly significant with the fact that we have such a tremendous shaking going on in the economies of this world right now, which could open the door for all kinds of things. When money is the driving force and power, and money is the problem right now, that should tell you something. At the same time, we've got some of the historical choke points where critical events come together. All the events going on in the history of Israel this last century. All the events going on in the body of Christ this last century. All the events going on in Christendom in general this last century with the tremendous number of martyrs that are being killed. Persecution can be a pressure, but sometimes you can be pressured without being persecuted directly. We're under tremendous pressure as a church. Israel's under tremendous pressure. Tremendously significant events going on with the nation of Israel. Tremendously significant events going on with the kingdom of God and with the body of Christ. Tremendously significant events going on in the realm of the false prophet and the man of sin. 600 years now since someone stepped down. And who's going to follow him? That ought to be something we ought to watch. People will be glued to their televisions watching that chimney, seeing when the smoke comes up to say they've chosen a pope, you know. Well, you ought to be paying attention to that. Maybe not entertained by it, but you ought to be paying attention. Because I would imagine the next pope, if he is not an older man, I was feeling this way with John Paul. I thought, if they choose a younger man, this could be very significant. But they didn't. They chose a very elderly man. And I knew that probably wasn't going to bring us into the next phase of things. If they choose a younger man now, 
It could be tremendously significant to know something about their beliefs and to see what direction they're going to take that church and how it'll affect the world if they can make some of the changes, politically speaking. You get a vigorous young man in there that has more liberal views, and it could dramatically change the path of what Catholicism has been. And I I really feel like Catholicism is a dark and a demonic house, but you add to that a course that's going to get closer to the world. The harlot has to mount the beast. She's got to get on his back. And right now, the papal system is not riding the beast. The beast is running wild.